0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to episode 23 of Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and if, after today, you end up with nightmares about slimy sea deities, you can tell me all about it. Now let's start this episode the way we always do, and that's with an iTunes review. Currently My Favorite by Mythical Podcast. This podcast is currently my favorite to listen to. The music, stories, and narrator's voice are a perfect combination. It's entertaining and even gives a little history on the authors. Learning is fun again. Thanks so much to my good friend, the narrator over at the Mythical Podcast. Mythical was our podcast partner several weeks ago, and if you haven't had a chance to check that out yet, you'd be well served to do so. It's a fun twist on some well-known and also some lesser-known fairy tales. And of course, thanks to everyone else who's reviewed the show. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, head over to iTunes and add your review, and we'll read it here on the program. You can also follow us on social media, whether that's on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at SYY You can contact me through any of those methods or through SYY at gmail.com with requests or with your own original short story. I enjoy talking with everyone, so don't be shy. Now, since you're here, I know you like a good story. But what do you think about one-third of a story that may or may not be good? It may sound a little odd, but it makes for a funny show. Let's hear about that from this week's podcast partner. Hey, Lindsay, are you ever curious about those old books with weird covers in the bargain bins? Oh my god, yes. Hey, Daniel, would you be in a book club where no one reads the whole book? Funny you ask, because that's our show, 33% Pulp. You, I, and a guest host each read a different third of a pulp novel and then recap the whole thing together. We start with context, the author, genre, themes, and so on. By the end of the third episode, you'll have heard the main plot, our commentary, and confusion. And sometimes we have companion episodes with related content from beyond the book with other podcasts. We're 33% pulp and 100% hopeful you'll join us. Bye. Bye! Well, now that you know how to interact with the show and you've met Lindsay and Daniel, let's get into this week's episode. This week, we will be focusing on one H.P. Lovecraft. I'm going to tell you something right now. If you've looked in the show notes, you already know this. But this is going to be a long intro, because Lovecraft, eh, there's kind of a lot to get into, even for a surface-level discussion. So buckle up for this one. It is a little bit long, but I think it's significant. Um, I'm not going to give you anything that I think is not interesting. So... That being said, let's move on to H.B. Lovecraft. Now, this week we're going to do the flow of the show a little bit differently than usual. You've got five total pieces coming your way today, three stories and two poems, so rather than introducing all of the pieces ahead of time, we're going to intersperse short intros throughout the duration of the episode. But first, of course, let's talk about Lovecraft himself. And I will say this, if you're here for the first time, first of all, welcome. And I hope you enjoy the show and stick around and subscribe. But if you're hoping for a comprehensive background on Lovecraft, that's a little bit beyond the purview of this here show. While I do give a brief background of the authors in front of the stories, most of the focus here is on the stories themselves. And I know there's a lot, there's a ton of information out there about Lovecraft, so really, we're just going to hit the highlights. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born in August of 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island. Like several of the authors we've featured here, Lovecraft lost a parent at a young age when his father died just before Howard turned eight years old. As a result, Lovecraft was raised by his mother, his two aunts, and his grandfather. His grandfather was an industrialist named, get this, Whipple Van Buren Phillips, which is a late 19th early 20th century name if I ever heard one, and he was a prominent industrialist, so the family was pretty well off for a time. Unfortunately for them, however, through a chain of either misfortune, mismanagement or some combination of the two, our friend Whipple's business concerns began to experience a downturn, which culminated in a business venture going belly-up in 1904, which was shortly before Whipple himself died of a stroke. Now, at this point, the family had to move from their expansive estate to some more humble accommodations. Now, this was a tough adjustment for the 14-year-old Lovecraft, and I'm not a Lovecraft scholar by any means, but just from what I've read, He doesn't seem to have been the most flexible of people. So change generally didn't go over well with him. And this kind of change in particular was pretty tough. And in fact, he said that he found little purpose in living at this point in his life. And his general sensitivity may have also led to his inability to make a living writing. If I may skip ahead a little bit here, he was very sensitive to negative feedback about his writing. So if he were to submit a story, say, and have it rejected, He would sometimes just not submit it anywhere else. This despite the fact that his work was generally pretty well received in Weird Tales and in other pulp publications where his work primarily lived during his lifetime. Now this is the point where I would typically run through the litany of jobs that the aspiring author had, or where I'd say that the author met with pretty much immediate success and was able to make a living as a professional writer from that point forward. But with Lovecraft, neither of these was actually the case. He primarily lived on his inheritance, which, as we've established, was largely depleted by the time he even received it, and almost gone completely by the time he died some 33 years later, despite his living in a very frugal manner. So you could say that he was a professional writer in the strictest of senses, even though he never made very much money at all with his writing, and often wrote for nothing, especially later in his life. And despite all that, he never really had another job to speak of. So as for those writings, Lovecraft wrote voraciously for basically his whole life. You can find short stories going back to when he was seven years old, literally, uh, and these are available online. He wrote as a young man for scientific periodicals about astronomy and chemistry and such, as he was very interested in those subjects, but would not pursue them later due to the preponderance of the math involved. He also wrote volumes of letters, which have been published in collections that are still available today. He wrote letters to editors about uh, his literary theory and, uh, you know, the critical analysis of other authors' work. He also wrote to other authors, mostly, and uh, this was how he seemed to stay in touch, as it were, with the world. He was married for a time, uh, which we won't really get into here, but I thought it was worth mentioning, obviously, since that's a pretty momentous occasion in most people's lives. He lived in New York during the time in which he was married, but then moved back to Providence when it was clear that the marriage was doomed. Though the split was amicable, despite my use of somewhat dramatic language there. So back to Lovecraft's writings. His first published short story was The Alchemist, which was published in a volume called The United Amateur in November of 1916. It seems like The United Amateur was a periodical featuring the works of, for lack of a better term, amateur writers that was published by the United Amateur Press Association, of which Lovecraft was a member at the time. I couldn't really find a whole lot about the publication itself. Now, to talk about his writings in general, some have grouped Lovecraft's stories into three sections. The Macabre Stories, the Dream Cycle Stories, and the Cthulhu Mythos. And I'm going to pronounce this Cthulhu, I've heard it pronounced in a couple of different ways, but uh, this is just the easiest one to say, so we're going to go with that. Now, these three sections of stories, or, or different kinds of stories, were kind of chronological throughout Lovecraft's life. Uh, The macabre ones came first, the dream cycle stories came next, and the Cthulhu came uh, later in his life, though there were some kind of mixed in uh, in the other sections, for lack of a better term. Macabre stories kind of speaks for itself. Uh, The Terrible Old Man, our first story, is going to fit into that category. The dream cycle stories are a series of stories concerning the dreamlands, quote unquote, which is an alternate dimension entered through, wouldn't you know it, dreams. The Outsider, which is our second story, will fit into that category. And of course, the Cthulhu mythos concerns the world that was created in large part by the story The Call of Cthulhu. This particular mythos has been built upon and expanded by several writers after Lovecraft's uh, death. Now, we won't get very heavily at all into the Cthulhu mythos here, but our third story, Dagon, to me, anyway, seems like a precursor to the call of Cthulhu, despite being written about 10 years before that story was published in Weird Tales. So the elephant in the room in any conversation about Lovecraft is his horrible racism. Now if you're not familiar with this, you may be thinking, well, he only lived until the early 1930s, wasn't racism pretty pervasive at that time? Well yeah, but his was on another level. Now I'm not going to get into the kind of things he thought and said about blacks and other non-Anglo-Saxons, but trust me when I say that it is not pretty. Even for the time in which he lived, he had some pretty heinous views, like subhuman kinds of views. And really, you don't have to look very hard to see some of those views emerge in his writing. It's pretty apparent to me that his views came from a place of fear. Now, I'm, I don't mean to play uh, armchair psychologist or what have you, but the guy was pretty obviously not well-adjusted and feared a lot of things and people. He didn't like a lot of face-to-face interaction, and I get the feeling that most of his communication with the world outside his home was written, Uh, hence the volumes and volumes of letters. So it only stands to reason that he would fear people who were different from him, or who he perceived to be different from him. And really, if you look at his style of writing, his characters are all pretty passive observers. You don't see dialogue between characters. In fact, sometimes his protagonists don't interact with anyone at all or they're shunned in some way, or have terrible experiences if they do interact with somebody. There's always this sense of fear that hangs over his stories, and it's the fear that the narrator feels in even retelling of these experiences that they've had. Uh, This is, of course, in no way an attempt to excuse the things he wrote and said about people who look different from him. It's just an observation. So, uh, Lovecraft really is a fascinating guy, and I've barely scratched the surface here, but we've got to move on. So Lovecraft died pretty much destitute in 1937 of intestinal cancer. Uh, His works at the time had never been condensed into any collections, and several were unpublished. Uh, He had published several works just over the course of his life in different pulps and different amateur publications, and they were just all over the place. It fell to some of his correspondents, namely August Derleth, another writer who would add to the Cthulhu mythos, and Donald Wandry, they formed a publishing firm called Arkham House, and they published several of his works in collection form after his death. As I mentioned last week in the tease, despite never really making much of a living selling his work, Lovecraft's stories have been hugely influential and continue to be so. In fact, there's a whole subgenre of horror known commonly as Lovecraftian or cosmic horror. Now, you'll get a good taste of that today, obviously, and the characteristics are pretty easy to spot. It deals with the unknown, or the unknowable. The characters often don't know what's going on and either go insane, or feel like they're going to go insane. There's this feeling of helplessness that hangs over the story. The the narrator is often either an outcast or isolated from society somehow, and really, like I said before, this all seems like Lovecraft writing from a place of his own fear. It seems like you're just getting a look inside of his head. In fact, unsurprisingly, a lot of his inspiration for stories came from Dreams. Okay, this is, again, just a brief overview of Lovecraft, who is one of the more interesting authors I've covered here. And there is so much more out there on him if you're interested in checking that out. But let's move on to the first part of today's presentation. Now, the way the show is going to go today is that we will bookend three stories with poems. Lovecraft wrote a bunch of poems in addition to his short stories, and I wanted to make sure we get a couple of those in there. The first one is going to be the first piece that we do today, called Halloween in a Suburb, which was first published in the National Amateur in March of 1926. Now, the National Amateur, as far as I can tell, was last published in 2010, or at least that's the most recent issue according to their own website. And it seems like Lovecraft submitted these works to amateur publications to avoid the possibility of being rejected, Uh, though I may be off base there, just seems like it would be the case based on what I've read about the guy. But again, his publishing history is uh, pretty unique, uh, one could say. So this poem, Halloween in a Suburb, has kind of a different construction than any that I've seen. Now admittedly, I have read very little poetry, uh, comparative to I'm sure many of you out there, but that being said, I've never seen a construction like this. At the end of each verse, it seems like the verse is over, but there's one more line included. Uh, after what seems like the end. I don't know how else to describe it because, again, I'm not a, a poetry scholar of any kind at all. So, following that poem, we're going to hear The Terrible Old Man. This story was first published in July of 1921 in a volume called The Tryout. You might guess by that name, and you'd be correct, that this was another amateur publication, and it was published by the National Amateur Press Association, just like the National Amateur. Lovecraft actually published stories in the tryout under several pen names, such as Lawrence Appleton, I don't know if he went by Cousin Larry, and if you're old enough to get that reference, let me hear from you on Twitter, Ward Phillips, Edward Softley, and Archibald Mainwaring, among others. The tryout was published in Haverhill, Massachusetts from the home of Charles W. Smith, who ran the publication until about two years before his death in 1948. Now again, if you're new to the show, first of all, Welcome. And secondly, I hope you're still around, because this is a much longer intro than we usually do for the authors, but I just couldn't really help myself here. Now, one final note before we get into the meat of the program today. I hope that you listen to this show with headphones, or in the car, or just on a good sound system, because that's just the best way to do it, and really, you get the full effect of the production uh, if you listen that way, but I especially recommend it today and throughout this month. Scary stories are much more effective in an audio environment when you've got good sound, and can get more absorbed into what you're hearing, which is why I would recommend headphones even above the other uh, options. And that goes for previous scary stories we've done in the, in the past as well. I just thought uh, that it made sense to mention it now, since we're going to do a, ser- a series of them over the course of October. But if you listen to things like The Empty House or uh, you know other kind of scary stories in previous episodes without headphones, and especially on your iPhone speaker, I, I, heaven forbid that you do that, but you know, either way I, I should say, listen to the show, first of all, even if you listen on your iPhone speaker, but if you want the full experience, get those headphones or get yourself good, you know, get yourself into, into a car or a good sound system so you can really get the uh, the full effect of what's going on here. Now, all that being said, I will be back with an intro to the second story, but for now, let's get into why you came here in the first place. And here is the first part of today's presentation. Halloween in a Suburb by H.P. Lovecraft The steeples are white in the wild moonlight and the trees have a silver glare. Past the chimneys high see the vampires fly and the harpies of upper air that flutter and laugh and stare. For the village dead to the moon outspread never shone in the sunsets gleam, but grew out of the deep that the dead years keep where the rivers of madness stream down the gulfs to a pit of dream. A chill wind weaves through rows of sheaves in the meadows that shimmer pale, and comes to twine where the headstones shine and the ghouls of the churchyard wail for harvests that fly and fail. Not a breath of the strange gray gods of change that tore from the past its own can quicken this hour when a spectral power spreads sleep o'er the cosmic throne and looses the vast unknown. So here again stretch the veil and plain That moon's long forgotten saw, And the dead leap gay in the pallid ray Sprung out of the tomb's black maw To shake all the world with awe. And all that the morn shall greet forlorn The ugliness and the pest of rows Where thick rise the stones and brick Shall some day be with the rest and brood with the shades unblessed, then wild in the dark let the lemurs bark and the leprous spires ascend, for new and old alike in the fold of horror and death are penned, for the hounds of time to rend. Terrible Old Man by H.P. Lovecraft It was the design of Angelo Ricci and Joe Zanuck and Manuel Silva to call on the terrible old man. This old man dwells all alone in a very ancient house on Water Street near the sea and is reputed to be both exceedingly rich and exceedingly feeble which forms a situation very attractive to men of the profession of Mr. Ricci, Zanuck, and Silva, for that profession was nothing less dignified than robbery. The inhabitants of Kingsport say and think many things about the terrible old man, which generally keep him safe from the attention of gentlemen like Mr. Ricci and his colleagues, despite the almost certain fact that he hides a fortune of indefinite magnitude somewhere about his musty and venerable abode. He is, in truth, a very strange person, believed to have been a captain of East India clipper ships in his day, so old that no one can remember when he was young, so taciturn that few know his real name. Among the gnarled trees in the front yard of his aged and neglected place he maintains a strange collection of large stones, oddly grouped and painted so that they resemble the idols in some obscure eastern temple. This collection frightens away most of the small boys who love to taunt the terrible old man about his long white hair and beard, or to break the small paned windows of his dwelling with wicked missiles. But there are other things which frighten the older and more curious folk who sometimes steal up to the house to peer in through the dusty panes. These folks say that on a table in a bare room on the ground floor are many peculiar bottles, In each, a small piece of lead suspended pendulum-wise from a string. And they say that the terrible old man talks to these bottles, addressing them each by such names as Jack, Scarface, Long Tom, Spanish Joe, Peters, and Mate Ellis. And that whenever he speaks to a bottle, the little lead pendulum within makes certain definite vibrations as if in answer. Those who have watched the tall, lean, terrible old man in these peculiar conversations do not watch him again. But Angelo Ricci and Joe Zanek and Manuel Silva were not of Kingsport blood. They were of that new and heterogeneous alien stock which lies outside the charmed circle of New England life and traditions, and they saw in the terrible old man merely a tottering, almost helpless graybeard who could not walk without the aid of his knotted cane, and whose thin, weak hands shook pitifully. They were really quite sorry in their way for the lonely, unpopular old fellow whom everybody shunned, and at whom all the dogs barked singularly. But business is business, and to a robber whose soul is in his profession, there is a lure and a challenge about a very old and very feeble man who has no account at the bank, and who pays for his few necessities at the village store with Spanish gold and silver minted two centuries ago. Messrs. Ricci, Zanek, and Silva selected the night of April 11th for their call. Mr. Ricci and Mr. Silva were to interview the poor old gentleman whilst Mr. Zanek waited for them and their presumable metallic burden with a covered motor car in Ship Street by the gate in the tall rear wall of the host's grounds desire to avoid needless explanations in case of unexpected police intrusions prompted these plans for a quiet and unostentatious departure. As prearranged, the three adventurers started out separately in order to prevent any evil-minded suspicions afterwards. Mr. Ritchie and Silva met in Water Street by the old man's front gate, and although they did not like the way the moon shone down upon the painted stones through the budding branches of the gnarled trees, They had more important things to think about than mere idle superstition. They feared it might be unpleasant work making the terrible old man loquacious concerning his hoarded gold and silver, for aged sea captains are notably stubborn and perverse. Still, he was very old and very feeble, and there were two visitors. Messrs. Ricci and Silva were experienced in the art of making unwilling persons voluble and the screams of a weak and exceptionally venerable man can be easily muffled. So they moved up to one lighted window and heard the terrible old man talking childishly to his bottles with pendulums. Then they donned masks and knocked politely at the weather-stained oaken door. Waiting seemed very long to Mr. Zanuck, as he fidgeted restlessly in the covered motor car by the terrible old man's back gate in Ship Street. He was more than ordinarily tender-hearted, and he did not like the hideous screams he had heard in the ancient house just after the hour appointed for the deed. Had he not told his colleagues to be as gentle as possible with the pathetic old sea captain? Very nervously he watched that narrow oaken gate in the high and ivy-clad stone wall. Frequently he consulted his watch and wondered at the delay. Had the old man died before revealing where his treasure was hidden, and had a thorough search become necessary? Mr. Zanuck did not like to wait so long in the dark in such a place. Then he sensed a soft tread or tapping on the walk inside the gate, heard a gentle fumbling at the rusty latch, and saw the narrow, heavy door swing inward. And in the pallid glow of the single dim street lamp, he strained his eyes to see what his colleagues had brought out of that sinister house which loomed so close behind. But when he looked, he did not see what he had expected, for his colleagues were not there at all, but only the terrible old man, leaning quietly on his knotted cane and smiling hideously. Mr. Zanuck had never before noticed the color of the man's eyes. Now he saw that they were yellow. Little things make considerable excitement in little towns, which is the reason the Kingsport people talked all that spring and summer about the three unidentifiable bodies, horribly slashed as with many cutlasses, and horribly mangled, as by the tread of many cruel boot-heels, which the tide washed in. And some people even spoke of things as trivial as the deserted motor-car found in Ship Street, or certain especially inhuman cries, probably of a stray animal or a migratory bird, heard in all the night by wakeful citizens. But in this idle village gossip the terrible old man took no interest at all. He was by nature reserved, and when one is aged and feeble, one's reserve is doubly strong. Besides, so ancient a sea captain must have witnessed scores of things much more stirring in the far-off days of his unremembered youth. Part two of today's show features The Outsider. Now, this was first published in our old friend Weird Tales in April of 1926. I've gone into the history of Weird Tales before, so I won't do it again here. Now, if you want to hear that, check out episode 13, which featured the story far below. We may get into another, more detailed history of Weird Tales at some point, but we've done so much exposition on this episode that I hate to do it right now. Now, one more note about this here story. You'll note that the use of Nepenthe uh, happens in this piece, Lovecraft was a big fan of Edgar Allan Poe, and was actually also a fan of The Odyssey. And between Poe's The Raven and The Odyssey, those are the two pieces where I've seen Nepenthe used before. And of course, we did The Raven on episode 10 of this show, so if you haven't heard that yet, go back and check that out. And I explain what Nepenthe is there, but I'll say it again for for those of you who are new to the show, to remind you, uh, Nepenthe is a drug of forgetfulness, or I've seen it most aptly compared to a modern-day antidepressant. So, with that in mind, and without further ado, here is part two of today's presentation. The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft That night the Baron dreamt of many a woe, and all his warrior guests with shade and form of witch and demon and large coffin worm for long be nightmared. Keats Unhappy is he to whom the memory of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon the lone hours in vast and dismal chambers, With brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, Or upon awed watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic, and vine-encumbered trees, that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me, the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. And yet I am strangely content and cling desperately to those seer memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the Other. I know not where I was born, save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible. Full of dark passages and having high ceilings where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. The stones in the crumbling corridors seemed always hideously damp, and there was an accursed smell everywhere, as of the piled-up corpses of dead generations. It was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gaze steadily at them for relief, nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower. There was one black tower which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined and could not be ascended save by a well-nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. I must have lived years in this place, but I cannot measure the time. Beings must have cared for my needs, yet I cannot recall any person except myself, or anything alive but the noiseless rats and bats and spiders. I think that whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged, since my first conception of a living person was that of something mockingly like myself, yet distorted, shriveled, and decaying like the castle. To me there was nothing grotesque in the bones and skeletons that strode some of the stone crypts deep down among the foundations. I fantastically associated these things with everyday events and thought them more natural than the colored pictures of living beings which I found in many of the moldy books. From such books I learned all that I know. No teacher urged or guided me. I do not recall hearing any human voice in all those years, not even my own, for although I had read of speech, I had never thought to try to speak aloud. My aspect was a matter equally unthought of, for there were no mirrors in the castle, and I merely regarded myself by instinct as akin to the youthful figures I saw drawn and painted in the books. I felt conscious of youth because I remembered so little. Outside, across the putrid moat and under the dark, mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I read in the books, and would longingly picture myself amidst gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forest. Once I tried to escape from the forest, but as I went farther from the castle, The shade grew denser, and the air more filled with brooding fear, so that I ran frantically back lest I lose my way in a labyrinth of nighted silence. So, through endless twilights, I dreamed and waited, though I knew not what I waited for. Then, in the shadowy solitude, my longing for light grew so frantic that I could rest no more, and I lifted entreating hands to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest into the unknown outer sky. And at last I resolved to scale that tower, fall though I might, since it were better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever beholding day. In the dank twilight I climbed the worn and aged stone stairs till I reached the level where they ceased, and thereafter clung perilously to small footholds leading upward. Ghastly and terrible was that dead, stairless cylinder of rock, black, ruined, and deserted and sinister with startled bats whose wings made no noise. But more ghastly and terrible still was the slowness of my progress, for climb as I might, the darkness overhead grew no thinner, and a new chill as of haunted and venerable mold assailed me. I shivered as I wondered why I did not reach the light, and would have looked down had I dared. I fancied that night had come suddenly upon me, and vainly groped with one free hand for a window embrasure, that I might peer out and above and try to judge the height I had attained. All at once, after an infinity of awesome, sightless crawling up that concave and desperate precipice, I felt my head touch a solid thing, and I knew that I must have gained the roof, or at least some kind of floor. In the darkness I raised my free hand and tested the barrier, finding it stone and immovable. Then came a deadly circuit of the tower, clinging to whatever holds the slimy wall could give, till finally my testing hand found the barrier yielding, and I turned upward again, pushing the slab or door with my head, as I used both hands in my fearful ascent. There was no light revealed above, and as my hands went higher, I knew that my climb was for nuns ended. Since the slab was the trap door of an aperture leading to a level stone surface of greater circumference than the lower tower, no doubt the floor of some lofty and capacious observation chamber, I crawled through carefully and tried to prevent the heavy slab from falling back into place, but failed in the latter attempt. As I lay exhausted on the stone floor, I heard the eerie echoes of its fall, but hoped, when necessary, to pry it open again. Believing I was now at a prodigious height far above the accursed branches of the wood, I dragged myself up from the floor and fumbled about for windows that I might look for the first line upon the sky, and the moon and stars of which I had read. But on every hand I was disappointed, since all that I found were vast shells of marble bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size. More and more I reflected and wondered what hoary secrets might abide in this apartment so many eons cut off from the castle below. Then, unexpectedly, my hands came upon a doorway, where hung a portal of stone, rough with strange chiseling. Trying it, I found it locked. But, with a supreme burst of strength, I overcame all obstacles and dragged it open inward. As I did so, there came to me the purest ecstasy I have ever known. For shining tranquilly through an ornate grating of iron and down a short stone passageway of steps that ascended from a newly found doorway was the radiant full moon which i had never before seen save in dreams and in vague visions i dared not call memories fancying now that i had attained the very pinnacle of the castle i commenced to rush up the few steps beyond the door but the sudden veiling of the moon by a cloud caused me to stumble and i felt my way more slowly in the dark It was still very dark when I reached the grating, which I tried carefully and found unlocked, but which I did not open for fear of falling from the amazing height to which I had climbed. Then the moon came out. Most demonical of all shocks is that of the abysmally unexpected and grotesquely unbelievable. Nothing I had before undergone could compare in terror with what I saw now, with the bizarre marvels that sight implied. The sight itself was as simple as it was stupefying, for it was merely this. Instead of a dizzying prospect of treetops seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me on a level through the grating nothing less than solid ground, decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns, and overshadowed by an ancient stone church whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight. Half unconscious, I opened the grating and staggered out upon the white gravel path that stretched away in two directions. My mind, stunned and chaotic as it was, still held the frantic craving for light, and not even the fantastic wonder which had happened could stay my course. I neither knew nor cared whether my experience was insanity, dreaming, or magic, but it was determined to gaze on brilliance and gaiety at all cost. I knew not who I was or what I was or what my surroundings might be, though as I continued to stumble along I became conscious of a kind of fearsome, latent memory that made my progress not wholly fortuitous. I passed under an arch out of that region of slabs and columns and wandered through the open country, sometimes following the visible road but sometimes leaving it curiously to tread across meadows where only occasional ruins bespoke the ancient presence of a forgotten road. Once I swam across a swift river where crumbling mossy masonry told of a bridge long vanished. Over two hours must have passed before I reached what seemed to be my goal, a venerable ivied castle in a thickly wooded park, maddeningly familiar yet full of perplexing strangeness to me. I saw that the moat was filled in, and that some of the well-known towers were demolished, whilst new wings existed to confuse the beholder. But what i observed with chief interest and delight were the open windows gorgeously ablaze with light and sending forth sound of the gayest revelry advancing to one of these i looked and saw an oddly dressed company indeed making merry and speaking brightly to one another i had never seemingly heard human speech before and could guess only vaguely what was said some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that brought up incredibly remote recollections others were utterly alien I now stepped through the low window into the brilliantly lighted room, stepping as I did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackest convulsion of despair and realization. The nightmare was quick to come, for as I entered, there occurred immediately one of the most terrifying demonstrations I had ever conceived. Scarcely had I crossed the sill when there descended upon the whole company a sudden and unheralded fear of hideous intensity, distorting every face and evoking the most horrible screams from nearly every throat. No,
1: no, 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 no.
0: Life was universal, and in the clamor Get. and panic, Get several back. fell in a swoon Get. and were dragged away by their madly fleeing companions. Is, many covered their eyes with their hands and plunged blindly it? and awkwardly in their race to escape, no. overturning no. furniture and stumbling no, no. against the walls before they managed to reach one of the many doors. The cries were shocking, and as I stood in the brilliant apartment alone and dazed, listening to their vanishing echoes, I trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me unseen. At a casual inspection, the room seemed deserted, but when I moved toward one of the alcoves, I thought i detected a presence there, a hint of motion beyond the golden arch doorway, leading to another and somewhat similar room. As I approached the arch, I began to perceive the presence more clearly, and then with the first and last sound I ever uttered—a ghastly ululation that revolted me almost as poignantly as its noxious cause—I beheld in full frightful vividness the inconceivable, indescribable, and unmentionable monstrosity, which had by its simple appearance changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint what it was like, for It was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal, and detestable. It was the ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity, and desolation, the putrid, dripping Eidolon of unwholesome revelation, the awful bearing of that which the merciful Earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world, or no longer of this world, yet, to my horror, I saw in its eaten away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty on the human shape, and in its moldy, disintegrating apparel an unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. I was almost paralyzed, but not too much so to make a feeble effort toward flight. A backward stumble which failed to break the spell in which the nameless, voiceless monster held me. My eyes. Bewitched by the glassy orbs which stared loathsomely into them, refused to close, though they were mercifully blurred and shewed the terrible object, but indistinctly after the first shock. I tried to raise my hand to shut out the sight, yet so stunned were my nerves that my arm could not fully obey my will. The attempt, however, was enough to disturb my balance, so that I had to stagger forward several steps to avoid falling. As I did so I became suddenly and agonizingly aware of the nearness of the carrion thing whose hideous hollow breathing I half-fancied I could hear. Nearly mad I found myself yet able to throw out a hand to ward off the fetid apparition which pressed so close, when in one cataclysmic second of cosmic nightmarishness and hellish accident my fingers touched the rotting outstretched paw of the monster beneath the golden arch. I did not shriek. But all the fiendish ghouls that writhe the night wind shrieked for me, as in that same second there crashed down upon my mind a single and fleeting avalanche of soul-annihilating memory. I knew in that second all that had been. I remembered beyond the frightful castle and the trees, and recognized the altered edifice in which I now stood. I recognized, most terrible of all, the unholy abomination that stood leering before me, "'as I withdrew my sullied fingers from its own. "'But in the cosmos there is balm as well as bitterness, "'and that balm is Nepenthe. "'In the supreme horror of that second, "'I forgot what had horrified me, "'and the burst of black memory vanished in chaos of echoing images. "'In a dream I fled from that haunted and accursed pile "'and ran swiftly and silently in the moonlight. "'When I returned to the churchyard palace of marble "'and went down the steps, I found the stone trapdoor immovable, but I was not sorry, for I had hated the antique castle and the trees. Now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls on the night wind, and play by day amongst the catacombs of Nephron Ka in the sealed and unknown valley of Hadoth by the Nile. I know that light is not for me, save that of the moon over the rock tombs of Neb nor any gaiety save the unnamed feasts of Nitocris beneath the Great Pyramid. Yet in my new wildness and freedom, I almost welcome the bitterness of alienage. For though Nepenthe has calmed me, I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame, stretched out my fingers, and touched a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass. For the final act of today's show, we're going to dip our toes into the Cthulhu mythos. Now, as I've said, this is not officially part of that mythos since it came before the call of Cthulhu, but there are definitely elements there. It's almost like a prequel. Cthulhu Episode 1, if you will, but without Jar Jar Binks. So, today's final story, Dagon, was first published in November of 1919 in a publication called The Vagrant. This was, as you might have guessed, another amateur zine of sorts. Like much of Lovecraft's early work published in amateur periodicals, it was later republished in Weird Tales uh, as well. This one was in Weird Tales, others were published uh, just around. Now Dagon is the last short story for today, and after Dagon, we're going to have the final poem, which is simply titled The Cats. Now, I have not really explored this, but it's pretty apparent to me that Lovecraft felt some kind of way about cats. I'll leave that up to you, dear listener, if you want to see if you can figure that one out. But, this was actually first published in 1977 in a collection of poetry called A Winter Wish. I'm not completely sure if this was a collection of never before published poetry, but it certainly stands to reason that there seems to have been quite a few poems that were just kind of around when Lovecraft died. So. Now that you know a little bit more about Act 3, let's get that started, right now. Dagon, by H.P. Lovecraft I am writing this under an appreciable mental strain, since by tonight, I shall be no more. Penniless and at the end of my supply of the drug which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think from my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, though never fully realize, why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell a victim to the German Sea Raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made a legitimate prize, whilst we of her crew were treated with all fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners. So liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken, I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess vaguely by the sun and stars that I was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some habitable land. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair in my solitude upon the heaving vastness of the unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know. For my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous— When at last I awaked, it was to discover myself half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire which extended about me in monotonous undulations as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. (sighs) Though one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation of scenery, I was, in reality, more horrified than astonished, "'for there was in the air and in the rotting soil "'a a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. "'The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish "'and of other less describable things "'which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plain. "'Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words "'the unutterable hideousness that can dwell "'in absolute silence and barren immensity.' There was nothing within hearing, and nothing in sight save a vast reach of black slime. Yet the very completeness of the stillness and the homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet, As I crawled into the stranded boat I realized that only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions which for innumerable millions of years had lain under unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me that I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean, strain my ears as I might, nor were there any sea-fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for travelling purposes in a short time. That night I slept but little and the next day I made for myself a pack containing food and water preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening, but I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight an evil, and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily westward guided by a faraway hummock which rose higher than any other elevation in the rolling desert. That night I encamped, and on the following day still traveled toward the hummock, though that object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first espied it. By the fourth evening I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance, an intervening valley setting it out in a sharper relief from the general surface. Too weary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, I now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the Eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side, into an immeasurable pit or canyon whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illumine. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into the fathomless chaos of eternal night. Through my terror ran curious reminiscences of Paradise Lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness." As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual. Urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. All at once, my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope which rose steeply about an hundred yards ahead of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself, but I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with sensations I cannot express, for, despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith whose massive bulk had known the workmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm, and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions, and almost lapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me, and unlike anything I had ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols such as fishes, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on the ocean risen plain. It was the pictorial carving, however, that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water on account of their enormous size were an array of bas reliefs whose subjects would have excited the envy of a Dory. I think that these were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shown disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto, or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Of their faces and forms, I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint, grotesque beyond the imagination of a Poe or a Bulwer. They were damnably human in general outline despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes and other features less pleasant to recall. Curiously, though, they seem to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale, represented as but a little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished eras before the first ancestor of Piltdown or Neanderthal Man was born. Awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into a past beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist, I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then, suddenly... I saw it. With only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polyphemus like and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic, scaly arms. The while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. Of my frantic ascent of the slope and cliff and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have indistinct recollections of a great storm some time after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. When I came out of the shadows I was in a San Francisco hospital, brought thither by the captain of the American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium I had said much, but found that my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific my rescuers knew nothing, nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought out a celebrated ethnologist and amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon, the fish god, but soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug has given only transient surcease and has drawn me into its clutches as a hopeless slave, So now I am to end it all, having written a full account for the information or contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. Often I ask myself if it could not have been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man-of-war. This I ask myself, but ever does there come before me a hideously vivid vision in reply, I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of puny, war-exhausted mankind, of a day when the land shall sink. And the dark ocean floor shall descend amidst universal pandemonium. the end is near. I hear a noise at the door, as of some immense slippery body lumbering against it. It shall not find me. Oh, that hand, the window, the window. Cats by H.P. Lovecraft
1: Babbles of blocks to the high heavens towering, Flames of futility swirling below, Poisonous fungi in brick and stone flowering, Lanterns that shudder and deathlights that glow, Black monstrous bridges across oily rivers, Cobwebs of cable by nameless things spun. Catacomb deeps whose dank chaos delivers. Streams of live fetter that rots in the sun. Color and splendor, disease and decaying. Shrieking and ringing and scrambling insane. Rabbles exotic to stranger gods praying. Jumbles of odor that stifle the brain. Legions of cats from alleys nocturnal howling and lean in the glare of the moon. Screaming the future with mouthings infernal, yelling the burden of Pluto's red rune. Tall towers and pyramids ivied and crumbling. Bats that swoop low in the weed-cumbered streets. Bleak broken bridges or rivers whose rumbling joins with no voice. As the thick tide retreats, belfries that blackly against the moon totter, caverns whose mouths are by mosses effaced, and living to answer the wind and the water, only the lean cats that howl in the waste.
0: So, what do we learn from today's show? Well, there's a lot to unpack here, dear listeners, and I don't want to tell you what to think, but let's just say don't fear the differences that we have from one another as human beings. You can always get to know people, and they're much less scary that way. But as for sea deities and, well, maybe cats, those are another story. One more note before I begin the sign-off for this week. If you follow the show on social media, you may already know this, but you can hear me this week On another podcast, I was a guest host with uh, Dan over on the Netflix and Swill podcast, where we reviewed the new movie Hold the Dark and talked about some other Netflix shows and movies. I generally recommend checking out that podcast anyway, as it's one that I listen to on a weekly basis, but you should definitely listen this week. That show released yesterday and is available right now. That's Netflix, the letter N, Swill, S-W-I-L-L. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours, and if you did, I'd love it if you spread the word in whatever way you see fit. And leave an iTunes review for me to read on the show. If you've got a story to submit, or if you have a request for a short story, send that on in to syypodcast at gmail.com, or hit me up via the aforementioned social media handles. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Now... Next week, we will continue this theme of scary stories for October, and we've got a couple of original pieces from one familiar face and one that you may not yet know, though I think you're really going to enjoy them. Until then, this has been episode 23 of Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.